welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm Jason Van Tatenhove. It's Friday afternoon in Estes Park, Colorado. And today, as promised, we're going to be talking with an embattled doctor. Not out of Colorado, but out of Montana. But what happens with him is going to have repercussions throughout the, the medical world, really, I think. And we're going to be talking about the CDC walking back their opiate prescription recommendations that they issued in 2016, which has just been disastrous for patients and doctors alike um, and really has caused so much more harm than good and resulted in a large number of patients just being dropped from their care in this regard when it comes to pain control. And this had profound effects that have rippled across our community um, from skyrocketing suicide rates of pain patients to skyrocketing suicide rates of doctors who treat pain patients. We've seen doctors being put in jail um, right here in our community. I know of just through off conversation that there is a doctor that is is uh, in fear of being put in jail for similar things. Um, but really, one person has kind of took, taken a stand, and that's Dr. Mark Ibsen. And we, we met Dr. Ibsen right at the height of this. My wife had just been taken off all of her pain medication. And you have to understand, at that point, we had to drive 12 hours one way to, um, to, to, to go to the only pain clinic in Montana. And she was dropped with no foresight, no nothing. And you have to understand, my wife is missing 18 inches of her ilium and cecum. So she doesn't digest things like normal people. And um, th that was never taken into account. There was just, just, what I'll leave it at is she was straight up abandoned. And that set off a domino effect, which in my opinion, led her to um, coming within a, you know, a, a cat's hair of her dying last year. Uh, she's doing a lot better now, and things are getting better now, slowly. But this this victory that we had have, have had in, over the past week with the CDC walking back some of these guidelines um, was something that kind of came out of left field, out of the blue. Um, but it, it's a certain victory, and um, maybe that'll get more people to listen to the issues. Because really, if you've never had someone who is that you love, who is in chronic nightmarish pain, you know, at all hours of the day, there's just no relief. Um, it, it's hard to wrap your head around what's happening to these people, but it's something that eventually we're all going to experience because we all get older, we all get injured, um, our bodies break down, that's what happens. So sooner or later, either you or someone you love or someone that you care about, um, this is going to happen to. So this is something we need to look at fixing now. So just to give you a little idea about who Dr. Ibsen is, he's someone that um, just in November of, of last year, um, he's been uh, battling with the medical board in the state of Montana since 2013. The Montana Supreme Court just upheld a district court ruling on a decision by the Montana Board of Medical Examiners to place the Helena physician's medical license on hold. Um, but this may change everything. He has been fighting for his career and for, you know, literally the lives of his patients since in 2013 when a former employee filed a complaint against him, alleging that he had 
as I said, overprescribed medication for some patients. Um, but, you know, in 2015, a department of a Montana Department of Labor and Industry Hearing Officers report failed to substantiate those claims at all, finding a standard of patient care sufficient. Um, but they did find that there were some some inadequate records, so they said. And then that is what they focused in on. Um, and uh, it, it's still going to this day. But we're hoping that this new CDC um, guidance will help with that. So we're going to go ahead and just jump right in. Now, I do want to say that uh, Dr. Ibsen had just had open heart surgery last week. And um, we, I recorded the interview um, at the beginning of the week. He had just flown back into Montana. Um, and literally the next morning, he was so excited to just get on on the podcast and talk about these issues because this is such a big win and uh, hopefully it will revitalize um, getting some real eyes on the issue with what's happening in the state of Montana with Dr. Ibsen and then across the country uh, with pain patients and and doctors who treat pain patients because this is an issue that is not going to be going away. So he really, I thought he would be the best person to kind of bring on and explain the history behind it and, you know, how it's affected doctors, how it's affected patients um, uh, from an actual medical professional who's done this his whole uh, career. So let's just go ahead and jump into that interview. All right. So we are here with Dr. Mark Ibsen, who who has been in this battle for a long time. And it, he's made many sacrifices, um, really trying to just provide care for his patients. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself in your own words. Tell the, the listening audience a little bit about yourself and, and some of what brought you to where we are today. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. And thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, you will hear a little bit of lightness in my voice as I try not to cough. I'm about two weeks out from open heart surgery. Um, and that's part of this whole thing too. So we'll mention that today. Um, uh, but I may have to modulate my voice in order to not institute a cough because every time I cough, my sternum wants to explode. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, not- uh, yeah, I was, uh, they opened it up and I got five wires in there now. And, and um, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite the experience of acute pain and it gave me, it gave me some whole new insights in relating to pain. So tell us, tell us about your background as a medical doctor and kind of what started this, this, what has turned into a huge battle um, for you. Uh, one, we're finally starting to see some small victories in, but give us your, your history, your background. I, um, I graduated medical school in 1980. Um, and, uh, I intended to go into family practice and, you know, some hitching post Wyoming place, some Marcus Welby idealized situation. And, um, medicine of course was changing rapidly. And I ended up gravitating into emergency medicine. So I had about a 30, 30 year emergency medicine career. Um, and then I topped that off with starting an urgent care in my local town in 2010. And um, I, instead of kicking the can down the road from the ER, I became the person down the road that the can got kicked to. And right around 2011, uh, things were starting to backlash 
on pain as a fifth vital sign and treating pain really well. And doctors in Montana started to drop their patients or an older doctor like Dr. Burkholder retired. Uh, and on Friday, his patient goes in to see uh, Dr. Wampler, the younger partner, and Dr. Wampler won't write the prescription that Dr. Burkholder has been doing for 10 years. And now it's Friday afternoon and the patient knows they're going to be in withdrawal. And they come to me to my urgent care and say, I'm going to be in withdrawal. I need your help. Um, and this is not some, you know, um, easily profiled person. Uh, this, this is not um, something that, well, for me, I'm the profiled person and that I was outraged that they would just cut this guy off like that. And, um, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to treat chronic pain, but I'm also not going to allow someone to be harmed and go into withdrawal when I, when I can have something to do with it. And so I remember that moment, that first patient was the first one I decided I'd treat not not to take over their chronic pain management, but to but to help him through the weekend, you know, help him survive, uh, help him with nausea and muscle aches and sweats and the abject misery of being in withdrawal. And um, withdrawal is bad enough. I mean, it's a great lesson for for uh, for for people who who have an addiction, and part of the addiction is having a harmful substance and keep using it despite its ongoing harm. So withdrawal has some lessons to teach, um, but it's cruel when applied to someone who's just been betrayed by their system. And it's the cruelty of it that just really makes me nuts. So I treated that guy and then I treated another guy and another guy and a trickle became a flood. And all of a sudden everybody in Montana who had been abandoned and I called them opiate refugees, they, they were all seeking some help from me. And I was, I was reading the writing on the wall. In other words, I was not going to sustain these people. Um, as an urgent care doctor, you know, if somebody runs out of their Prozac or their Premarin or, or their, uh, you know, Flonase, you write them a script so they can get back to their doctor. You know, that's what we do. We fill in, we pinch hit. We're the substitute teachers of, of medicine. And, um, and, and so it was very clear to me that, I was just going to help this guy and, you know, somebody would pick him up and, you know, it's sort of like the tar baby. Nobody picked this guy up. Nobody was willing to see anybody who was on an opiate. And it was sort suddenly like leprosy or something. These patients were all being um, categorized and shamed and, and, and found themselves in this, in this very, very vulnerable situation that they never anticipated and nobody promised and they never got informed consent about. So- um, and, and I just wanna take a moment to add a little testimonial there that in my own life experience with, with my wife of 27 years, she became a medical refugee in the state of Montana. I mean, we would drive 12 hours to a pain clinic in um, Billings and literally, um, and this is a woman who's had, you know, 14 inches of her ileum and cecum removed. She has just documented medical history going back 20 plus years. Um, and they literally cut her off without any notice whatsoever after making a 12 hour trip, which is, is bad on the body, um, of anyone, much less someone who is, is medically disabled, hundred percent medically disabled. So, 
I just wanted to say that, you know, my own life experience backs up exactly what you've just said there. Yes. And the experience of, of millions of people, they did actually did a research project in 2011 about pain in America and estimated there's 100 million people in pain in America, which is like 30, 30% of the population. And, um, um, and at least 25 million of those are high impact pain patients who they need their pain medications in a palliative way in order to be able to get out of bed, go to work, pay their taxes, or if they're in the retirement years, get on the floor and play with their grandchildren. Um, and these people are, um, I mean, um, we've got some sort of w weird Puritan thing about pain in America. Um, um, and, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and, you know, toughen up. I did it. You can do it. And, and that is all true. I have a great pain tolerance. I, I, I participated in the dog sled race, race to the sky with a ruptured Achilles tendon and a ski boot. And I got my surgery after the race. You know, I can tolerate some pain. Um, um, but I absolutely cannot tolerate seeing cruelty. You know, pain has some lessons for us if it has a random nature to it. If, if, it, if it strikes like lightning, it has struck me in my life like lightning, kidney stones, Achilles tendon, open heart surgery this week. Um, it hits you and you got to deal with it when it hits you. But when someone else is through their own neglect or um, militant ignorance, when someone is forcing me or one of my patients to have pain that makes them so desperate that they kill themselves and six of my patients have, um, that is, that is not only heartbreaking, it is enraging to me. And, and it, and, Go ahead. It's, yeah. it's not just killing patients, it's killing pain doctors. I could tell you the story of our family practitioner up in uh, outside of Eureka, Montana, who killed himself. I was part of the EMT team that had to cut him down. That, so it's not just the patients, it's the, the people trying to help the patients too. And it's just been so dehumanizing. It's, I, I can't wrap, it's taken me this long to then address it in a public forum even put it into words. Yeah. 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 We, we've been calling this for, for years, like a moral injury. The, 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 the impact, I mean, uh, there are patients who are very upset with doctors and they, and they, and they should be because we have let them down. Um, but when a doctor is absolutely um, locked out or prohibited from, pro, from practicing his Hippocratic oath and forced to break that oath, that is an inevitable moral injury and it causes PTSD. And, and the Dr. Chase case, I can't wait to discuss that some more. We can spend a whole hour on that one. Um, um, I had the opportunity to see him as a patient before he died and the heartbreak of seeing somebody three weeks before they died and not being able to reach him, you know, or, or not even knowing that there was something to reach, right. you know, the, the, the mis people deal with, and that they deal with, um, you know, it, it is so isolating to have stinking thinking like that. And I, I get it every day. So I understand, you know, it, 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 it um, the, and the only thing I can do is basically uh, um, do my best in my own recovery and, and my, um, and I have new blood flow to my heart. And so, 
I have some plans to really kick ass <laughs> once I can get up on my feet. Once you get out and of the that, chair, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and, and that that involves basically I've already written a, a bunch of letters to the local folks in Montana essentially indicating that the the we have proven now without a shadow of a doubt that the CDC guidelines formed in secret in 2015 and published in 2016 were going to harm people. We predicted it. What what we predicted those of us who were against it actually happened. So we're very prescient, 100% accurate crystal ball. And all of that stuff happened. And the crime is not only that it was done in secret and it's harmed so many and that we predicted it, but that it's taken so long to get anyone's attention about how evil. Um, yeah. And, I, and the word, I, I'm going to use the word evil because, um, and, and not in some religious way or anything like that, but but one of the best definitions of evil is militant ignorance. And that means you know the facts and you're acting against the facts anyway. And they have known these facts the whole time because I was one of the people that made it clear to them. So let, let's go back in time a little bit so that our, our listening audience kind of knows what you went through. So you were treating patients. You were picking up the slack. What happened to you? Yeah, so um, so my urgent care got very uh, busy with with. Um, pain refugees. Um, I had also at that time begun to discover that I could help people who were in chronic pain with alternative forms of therapy like um, um, acupuncture, massage, physical therapy, um, and cannabis. And I was just just a babe in the woods about cannabis, learning about it. Someone would come to me and say, you know, Doc, would you do my cannabis card? And I'd, at first I'd say, no, I don't want to risk my license so you can get high. Um, but then I, but then I'd ask, I'd get curious, like, well, why? And they say, well, I used to take a hydrocodone and now I take cannabis. And I go, really? Yeah. I used to take gabapentin and now my brain works again and I'm on cannabis. Um, really? I have PTSD and I used to be on the VA cocktail that turned me into a zombie. And now I just take cannabis and I can engage in my life and, and love my loved ones and, and not worry about hurting someone. Um, or flipping out and going postal and all that. And I just began to realize that, wow, cannabis really helps. So it was right at that same per period where um, patients were being abandoned. And I, and I just said, well, you know, this is right in my wheelhouse. I, you know, I go overseas to, to help refugees. And here they are right in, right in my parking lot. And so I'm going to help these folks get the writing on the wall and I'm going to do my best to recruit some help and say to people, look, we have an access to get people off opiates. If you want to do that, let's get them on cannabis and see what happens. And it turns out that 80% of my patients were able to come off the opiates using cannabis. And, and I thought, Oh my God, I've just stumbled over something. I wanted to scream it from the rooftops. Um, kind of like Rip Van Winkle kind of waking up 80 years later. And it's like, I just sort of tumbled over this. And I thought, how did everybody miss this? Well, you know, if you follow, now if you follow the money, you can see how everybody missed it all. Um, um, but I was somewhat protected in my career as an ER doc in a hospital. You know, hospital-based, treat pain, get them out of there. And right. So, And after this, it's like, okay, I'm not afraid to treat pain, but, but who's going to help? And, uh, and I was sort of like the guy who was a volunteer in line at the POW camp, you know, his first day there. They ask for a volunteer. Everybody steps back and it's me standing there. <laughs> and I kind of, you know, it was very naive of me. Um, but, but also just 
Um, also, I've got the training to do this. And, and so I have this way of listening to patients that I can, that I can help figure out their solutions. It's called listening. <laughs> it's really radical. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I could see that these people could be helped and that these people were in a situation through no fault of their own, although being blamed like they were uh, some criminal. It's and really a dehumanizing, demonizing process that they, they put people through where they just it, dehumanize. It, it is. It is. And it's a very, and, and let's, let's go to the human part of it because pain is a very, very, very human thing. Um, now, now I'm sure pain clearly is manifested in other species. It's not just, it's not uh, just a human thing. Um, and in fact, you know, we know when our animals are in pain and we euthanize them because it's called humane. Um, and we don't even do that for our current patients in this current environment. And the backlash and un unintended or intended, I'm not sure. I, I wonder if it's intended, but the backlash of it for patients is pe even people with cancer pain are not getting pain relief. I just got discharged from the hospital in Ohio. And uh, on the day of discharge, they gave me 28 five milligram oxycodone, uh, which, is, which is for a day, which is seven days worth. And they said, this is the maximum allowed by Ohio law. Yep, and I ran into it with Shiloh. She had literally been dead. Before the paramedics got there, I, I, you know, I initiated first aid and thank God I was there. But I mean, she was dead. She had been in a medical coma with cascading organ failure for a week. And our first trip back after she recovered from that into the, our doc, I could not believe that. Like, on one hand, he's telling me, look, this she may not have long. This may be, you know, the, the, the end cycle that you're in. But at the same time, like she's physically tremoring. She's, you know, in just massive amounts of pain that you can't deny right there for him to see. And it is just now, we're just now, and I think it has more to do with the CDC's uh, admission that happened this week that we're actually getting her on the lowest dose of what she used to be on when we first started a family. But that, and that's with months of me advocating and having like intellectual philosophical conversations with this doctor who knows who I am. He, you know, he reads my writing. He knows that, you know, I'm not just some tattooed addict punk off the streets, but that I'm a, you know, an intelligent human being who's looking to, to have discourse and, and talk about these very human issues that are affecting my family directly. I mean, she, she had been dead and they wouldn't give her. I mean, and saying she doesn't have long. So why are we, what, what, what happens to quality of life there? There was none. Well, what happened for me there, um, and I was in a similar situation to your doctor, is that it became clear to me that they were after me and that they were not going, they were going to use me as a, as a uh, scapegoat um, and blame me for any particular drug problems that might be going on in Montana. Yeah. Um, that, and that if I continued to prescribe opiates to patients, I was going to go to prison. Um, and the short, the short story long is that, uh, you know, they, they went after my license. Um, my, I had assets that were seized. Um, I had to defend my license in court and it was humiliating. Um, they tried to, they tried to stop my license and take it from me. That was reversed. 
It was an eight year battle that's still going on. Um, and you know, it cost me everything, which is, which is, um, it's a great way to build credibility with people is to put everything. In. Um, yeah. so, so to that extent, my patients, I have credibility with them. Um, uh, because, because I stood by them because I promised that I would, I did the oaths and everything. I said, this is, this is harmful and I'm not going to harm you. And, and then the harm came anyway, in spite of, in spite of, uh, my best intentions and the relationship carnage and, and bankruptcy and all that stuff that happened. It was all basically, uh, something, something to get through. And on the other side of it, I still realized that, um, my one little bit of gratitude. Uh, I mean, I cried for my patients who died. I, I cried for those that have suffered and I cried for my own suffering and my own self pity. Um, but the, the one thing I'm grateful for is that, um, under that kind of duress, I didn't give in. Um, that that I have an oath, and, and that means more to me than any snarky comments some lawyer representing the board of medicine might have. So you know, some accusation that I'm some drug dealer, or that there are children in in Helena, Montana, who were taking hydrocodone on the weekends, and it's my fault, or that you know Johnny broke his collarbone, and seven years later he dies of a heroin overdose. It must be the doctor's fault. It's like we so so we now take it out of my expert hands. And put and put the treatment of pain in the hands of some guy. Call him whatever you will, Bobby Joe, Miguel. I don't care. He's not qualified. In fact, the definition of a drug pusher is someone who doesn't have a medical license. Okay, so so now we're treating pain that way instead of treating pain with some expertise and, and it's easier i mean here in colorado the the drug laws are much more lax than they are in in montana but i mean there are drug problems everywhere there were drug problems before this epidemic happened and there'll be drug problems after it's solved they're a separate issue and it, it, it astounds me that it's it would be easier for me to go down to Denver and score fentanyl or heroin off the streets, which I could do probably in a matter of two hours. Um, yeah. And but that's not what we're looking to do. We're looking to have medical treatment for a medical condition with medical professionals that that I can rely on for my family's health or just basic functionality. Um and they've driven it to a point where, you know, it, you're not going to get busted for, for buying heroin in Denver, but you are going to get busted for trying to get medical care for your wife who has got, you know, 20 plus years of medical history with it. Well, I'm calling this uh, Robin Hood medicine. Um, and, and basically, the patients have had every option um, to solve this. Um, the medical system has done nothing but thwart any solutions to it. And I, and I say to my patients, I won't judge you. You know, um, I, I wouldn't judge anyone who would go off and try to get some pain relief for a crippled howling dog in my front yard, um, let alone a family member who's sobbing and weeping and, and having 10 out of 10 pain. And, and I think that, you know, people are justified in doing whatever they can. I mean, basically, I ask people, if oxygen were illegal, you'd struggle to get it for about six minutes. Yep. 
and, and I and I think that, pay, that pain relief is the same is the same way. And if and if yes, I mean I basically am coaching people now. If you're going to seek pain in the only market that's left, I'm not even calling it the black market. It's just the market. If you're going to seek pain relief in that market, you got to have two things. You got to have Narcan, and you got to have a, a buddy system. Yep. You got to have somebody who's on duty and responsible for making sure that you're breathing, and that if you're not, that they'll either call an ambulance or give you the Narcan. Um, now that sounds just nuts. It sounds like something out of you know Blade Runner or some sort of apocalyptic scenario. Well, that's where we're at. That's this the world we're living in. That's where we're at. Yeah, I, I mean, could you even imagine yourself saying, making that statement 15 years ago? No, no. I mean, I, you know, I pride myself in my MacGyver medicine. You know, I mean, I've been in, I, I've given service to uh, uh, people in India and Greece and the West Indies um, and on Indian reservations. When I went to Standing Rock. You know, I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of service. Uh, wilderness medicine is too. Like the, the, the fun, the most fun thing about wilderness medicine is making up a scenario and finding a solution to it. And then, and then it's sort of like, who's that guy on the A team? You know, I just love it when a plan comes together. You know, and and it's like, uh, it's really cool when you have unexpected, wonderful, miraculous outcome for something that you didn't expect. Um, I'm still waiting for that miracle for for me and all my patients. Well, because we, it's got to happen. We we did have an unexpected victory, anyway, a small one. But that happened this week. Explain to my listeners who may not know what happened with the CDC guidelines and and kind of what they they put out this week. And how does that how does that how can we use that victory uh, to to build momentum towards where we need to get to? Yeah. Um. So, in 2015, <clears throat> a secret group assembled uh, to write some guidelines for uh, pain management. The Centers for Disease Control has never been interested in pain management because pain management has always been opiate related and therefore it's always been um, um, regulated by the FDA. Some anti-opiate crusaders went to the FDA and wanted less opiates available and the FDA said, you don't have the evidence to prove that. So they went to the CDC and said, um, you know, like going to your stepmother and saying, you know, I want to get around the rules. And they did an end run. And for some reason, they were successful in coming up with this idea that, oh, people are dying from hydrocodone and it must be Dr. Ibsen's fault. Let's restrict it. Um, and there's you wonder, well, why would somebody do that? And the answer in Washington is always follow the money. And basically, there's two two top groups that are very interested in um, restricting opiate access for the masses. OK. One group are the procedural doctors, the people who I call needle jockeys, the people who um, help patients by doing invasive procedures on them. Um, and they get reimbursed quite well for that. They actually developed, this is the American Society for Interventional Pain Physicians, ASIPP. And they came up with a protocol saying, you know, we're going to have more business if we restrict opiates. So let's just start disrespecting opiates in the literature. And they started doing that. And then the addiction doctors, the doctors who talk to people who are addicts, um, who don't know, who don't treat pain. And every addict says, I started with some hydrocodone from grandma's medicine cabinet. So every doctor who works with those addicts is saying, well, it's obviously the hydrocodone that caused it. Well, well that's like using the infectious disease model 
for addiction. You know, like, does beer cause alcoholism? No. I mean, does does um, do, do do opiates cause addiction? No. You have to have a predisposition to it. It's actually genetic. But but at any rate, you know, people really jumped on that bandwagon and said, "Oh, we're going to restrict opiates because." That myth of Johnny, the high school quarterback, dying seven years later of an opiate, uh, of a heroin overdose, and it must have been the Percocet, that is the dominant narrative and myth, and it's inaccurate. It's inaccurate to the tune of 99 to 1. Only 1% of people who are treated with chronic pain medication develop any signs of addiction. And, And it's particularly true that you don't have to avoid treating pain in people who have family histories of addiction. You know, you, you, you mentioned to your doctor that, oh, my mother was an alcoholic. You'll never see a trazodone, you know? I mean, it, it's like um, it, it, it's like this terror that we're going to cause addiction. And it's not the case. It's basically you have to manage risks in every patient, hypertensive, diabetic, or chronic pain. And, and we're seeing a lot of these databases that have popped up. And if you trace the origin of those... Um, you know, that's coming out of people that were creating databases for for pre-crime. Um, and, and you know, these databases, there's a great article in Wired. I'll put the link into it uh, on the, the notes of this interview where they're, they're showing, demonstrating that this is actually taking people who, who are um, at risk individuals anyway, people who have been, you know, minorities who are, are females, people of color people who have had sexual abuse in their histories, and they're taking that into account instead of just talking to the patient, instead of just finding out what the real deal is, they're, they're putting them into these, these, and I think these databases have just done all kinds of harm. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, I, I don't know how many times, within the last year, we probably have been referred to two different pain clinics, or not pain clinics. We, we went to the pain clinic, but then we're referred to a suboxone provider. Um, instead of getting actual medical treatment for the medical condition that these patients have, they're being pushed off to addiction counselors um, who are making a lot of money off of Suboxone and, and Methadone and such. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it, is, it is nuts because Suboxone is a lousy pain medicine. Now, it has, some, quote, it has some good qualities. And back in the 90s, Dr. Andrew Kolodny and Dr. Thomas and remember those two names, uh, were working together in New York City, and they found out that if they could treat um, um, heroin addiction with something that wouldn't kill the patient, they could be a lot more aggressive with treating it. In other words, if you treat heroin addiction and you give people methadone and they die on the methadone, you haven't done them any favors. So the thing about Suboxone is that it's formulated in a way that uh, if you shoot it or inject it or anything like that, it gets disabled. So people can take it orally, treat their cravings, keep their job, and succeed in medically assisted treatment where in other treatments they might not have succeeded. That is a panacea. That's a wonderful thing for a heroin addict. Okay. Um, And I know this very well. I have two nephews, heroin addicts, and one died. So this is really close to me. Um, so I, I love it that we found a solution to the heroin addiction problem that, that doesn't cause fatalities. Um, that doesn't mean it applies very well to uh, people in chronic pain. And Suboxone is a lousy pain medication. So people who are in pain, there are two things that happen. 
if they if they agree to taking suboxone, two things happen. They're stuck on the suboxone. They'll never get anything else. And the, and the other thing that happens is they're judged by any provider that ever sees them again as an addict because only addicts take suboxone. So you, it's it's basically like pleading guilty to some crime, even though this is there's nothing criminal about the treatment of a medical condition. Yeah, it turns into this um, crazy unless, feedback. Unless loop. you're a district attorney. Go ahead. I was just saying it, it just turns into this crazy feedback loop where it's just these patients are run around the, the gauntlet and there, there is no, there's no exit to it. Um, well, and at least that we've seen about it. And the crazy thing about it is that 80%, 80% of medical interactions are related to pain. In other words, you're having some pain or discomfort and you go to the doctor for relief. And now your doctor or your nurse practitioner or your, or your bureaucrat who's sitting behind a computer who can only say yes or no to certain things. They can only, they can only follow some protocol, check a box. Well, you don't qualify, no soup for you, you know? And, and, and it's just like, what, what about my training? Like, I, you know, it's like, put me in coach. I know how to play center field, you know? And, and I'm sidelined because of this, you know, crazy personal attack against me and my patients um, out of just greed and ambition based on the board of medicine and their activities and a bunch of other criminals. And, you know, and, I, and I'm kind of a criminal too, but, but it's like um, not this kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm not a criminal and I don't break the law. You know, um, I sometimes will bend the rules for you. If you're my patient, you know, I will, I will look for a solution that's specific for you, not the one that's right in the middle. You know, you and your family, that the option of a of an average solution to your wife's problem was out the window eight years ago, and you're on the fringe ever since. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And people on the fringe need somebody to say, "Hey, you're on the fringe. That doesn't make you bad. That makes you creative. You know, that doesn't make you bad that you're on the fringe. That makes us bad for not finding a solution for you." So, what do you think? What what are going to be the the repercussions from from the CDC kind of backtracking this week? What, what do you think we're going to see any tangible results for people in pain for patients that are suffering, um, or is it something we'll just be able to kind of use the momentum of? Uh, what 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 do you think? It's where are we right now? Well, we have we have winnable legal cases now, uh, so I think this is a huge shift. The fact that the CDC guidelines were repudiated. And that they're that they're having they have a 60-day open transparent program for comments. When they were first written, there was 48 hours of secret comments. So so this is this is a wide open opportunity for us to have the discussion. However, this discussion just based on comments doesn't stop people from lying. I think at some point we need congressional hearings. How did this actually happen? How did Andrew Kolodny and Tom Frieden do an end run around the FDA by making the CDC? responsible for pain management. And how did that go from suggestions to laws in the state of Ohio that, that affected me uh, personally? And, and how are you gonna change those laws? I mean, if, I was, if I'm a doctor in the state of Ohio, do I say, well, that law is bankrupt now? I, I don't have to follow it? Well, it's, it's codified. Somebody's gonna have to repeal it. Um, and, um, you know, laws are just, laws are like getting married, you know, they're, it's a lot easier to make the laws than it is to unmake them. <laughs> so 
I, I think that we have a long way to go. Um, but I think what's, what's really true now is that in the courts, there have been people harmed. Um, and I know them personally. And I am one, but but in spite of the harm to me, I, what I'm interested in is what about the uh, where is the justice? Um, right, who's res- who's going to take responsibility? There's never I I don't know if we'll ever see it. Yeah, or at least accountability. Yeah, I mean if they're gonna if they're gonna put some false accountabilities on me and say it's my fault, there's a there's a this so-called opiate epidemic, which is not even an epidemic. It's three percent of the population. And that number has been fixed for over 100 years. Um, and they're going to blame me for that. Then then when the truth comes out, we've got to start doing some truthing. Um, and um, uh, you, I'm going to have a lot more energy now that I've had my heart bypass. Um, and, uh, you know, I see some I see some insights that I've had about pain from my own personal experience about having open heart surgery. And and it is I can tell you. The, the, the more pain I experience and the more patients I relate to, the more I relate to this as a spiritual conundrum. And no wonder people kill themselves because I had this dark night of the soul myself. And it's basically, why hast thou forsaken me? I just, I just realized that pain is a broken agreement between us and our creator or our higher power or those who rule our lives or however you want to put it. It is, it is confronting. Um, and, and the, and, Guess how pain is resolved through community. Even though it's isolating, it can only be resolved by us all pulling together and not sniping at each other and, 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 and staying together and keeping the end in mind. And the end in mind is a Hippocratic world where, where I, as a physician, can treat my patients with exactly what they need and completely avoid what they don't need in order, in order to fulfill some protocol. So that's what I have a dream. <laughs> so, so how to segmenting right off that, what can people do right now to help this, to help get to that place? And this is an issue that's going to affect all of us folks. It's just a matter of time until one of your loved ones or even yourself is going to experience major, major pain. And so in, in a way, you know, I, I've always felt it was going to be, you know, a problem that would solve itself, but it's just going to take a whole lot of time because people have got to have that shared experience of going through some of these things. Um, yeah. But what with, with what's happened this week and, and the momentum we've got, what can just the average person do to help bring about change? Well, I, um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, um, I think it's still going to be happening at the level of legislators as well as the courts, okay? So basically we need people under oath. We need people to agitate to say, why did these CDC guidelines have to be repealed? Why were they misapplied in the first place? What happened? Let's have some hearings. And that that would be basically looking into CDC, FDA, DEA, and all of their behaviors. And that's gonna require some kind of an uprising. And I don't see it happening yet, but maybe it will. Or, or, or maybe at least somebody will say, Jesus, this is kind of curious. Let's." Let's investigate this, um, you know, because so many people have died. Um, so, so there's that. Then I think there's a, there's another legal prong. I've had a couple of legal cases that have fallen short. I have not found um, success myself in the legal system. And my lawyer says it best. He says, uh, you know, justice is a coincidence of the justice system, not a, not the outcome of it. Um, and so I think, well, if it's a coincidence. Well, then let's start throwing some more stuff up against the wall and see what sticks. Um, 
Um, so I think that there is like, for example, in Montana, you know, maybe my six patients who died, maybe their families might want to come together and have a conversation about who's responsible for this. Is this the wrongful death that these patients had? They killed themselves. Yes. But why did they kill themselves? They were suicidal because they weren't getting their pain medication. Two of these families sued me and eventually we resolved it. And I, you know, I made it clear to them that I was helping your family member, but now I want to go back and I want to talk to them and say, are you interested in dredging this up? I mean, are you outraged by what happened? And if you are, I sure as heck am. And let's, let's see if we can't get the attention of the, the board of medicine or the Montana medical association, the Montana state legislatures, um, and the insurance, the insurance commissioner in, in the state. I mean, basically insurance fraud is happening on every patient who's not getting their pain treated. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many medical uh, appointments get made to it with the hope of we're going to get some sort of help here, but really all they're doing is, in my opinion, all they're doing is finding a, an excuse to bill Medicaid because um, there, there was no treatment they were planning on doing. They knew they were going to say no from the very start, yet they, they fill your calendar with all these appointments, knowing that there's no way in the world they're ever going to treat you for this in the way you need to be treated. Yeah, yeah. it's basically preoccupy you with, a, with medical pinball while we do nothing for you. Yeah. 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 And, and, um, and I think, um, I think you're absolutely right, Jason, about what you said about pain. I mean, pain has either been here or it's coming. Um, and the, the only problem with that is we have a mind that's designed to forget pain because if we, if women did not forget the pain of childbirth, we would not have a species. Yeah. We would stop procreating real quick. Yeah, our, our brains are just desi designed to forget about agonizing pain. The agony of my open heart is, is, is fading already. It's only been two weeks. Um, but I tell you what, it affected me profoundly. And I feel like Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning, you know, and I'm feeling quite enthusiastic about life. Um, <laughs> and so you can count on me to be engaged in this uh, conversation because it's, it, it's a conversation whose time has come. Absolutely. And I think that gives us a good, good place to end things. Um, thank you so much for taking the time right after surgery to come on and talk. Um, yeah, anytime you, you have something going on, you want to help get the word out. You know, the one thing I do have going for me is I, I have a, a broad voice. Um, yeah. So I'm going to keep using that as much as I can to, to, to fight the good fight. Um, yeah. How can people, if they're in Montana, um, that, that want to reach out to you, that want to connect, if you know, and, and work towards this change, is there a way for them to do that? Yeah, I'm on Facebook, Mark Ibsen. Um, so um, I have my personal Facebook link. Um, I have a uh, Dr. Mark 406 is my is my Facebook business link. Um, uh, we have a Don't Punish Pain Rally Montana state chapter, um, and that's about to get real active. Um, um, and I think we've just kind of been treading water. And now now with these shifts in what could be possible, uh, where maybe somebody's listening, it's up to us to really put out some 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 good quality media to get their attention. And of course, there's our movie, Pain Warriors. So, okay. Um, is there anything we we haven't touched on that you wanted to? Um, just to reiterate, this experience I had, I now know what pain 10 is. 
I, I had I had a couple of misadventures during my surgery where I was just in complete agony. And I felt so isolated and alone and hijacked by those thoughts that I can I can actually really realize that we need to create a spiritual context for us to deal with patient suffering. Um, and, and that, and that the business I've been in all along thinking I was a scientist is I'm a minister <laughs> and, and it's a, it's a worthwhile ministry. And, and the honor of it is to have deep conversations with people like yourselves who are actually interested in people having lives that thrive. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ibsen. We really right. appreciate it. God bless you, Jason. All right, folks. Well, I hope you enjoyed this editorial feature podcast with Dr. Mark Ibsen. Um, obviously, this is a a topic that is near and dear to my heart because we really have suffered under what has happened here. Um, but uh, you know, it's been a pretty dark week for for news and such. So we're gonna uh, up the, the the mood a little bit over the weekend. I just uh, did a. Uh, interview podcast with a professional video game player who lives here in Estes now. So we'll be releasing that this weekend and maybe they get another uh, weekend rant out um, with, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say what, what it is yet. I, I'm not quite, uh, I haven't quite decided. Anyway, I uh, hope you are enjoying the podcast. Reaction has been fantastic. Um, again, please, if you are loving what you're getting here, the way you help us stay on the air on the interwebs is by just signing up for that uh, paid subscription. I did accidentally. Um, they, they just launched a new paywall on podcast feature for um, Substack, which is what I, I host the Colorado Switchblade on. Um, and uh, I, I didn't do it quite right because normally I'm going to try to give all the podcasts away for free uh, so that that you know information can get out there and if, if business, I'm going to open it up to business sponsorship so um, I apologize for that the Meow Wolf story about the uh, me and my daughter's going to Meow Wolf uh, on Valentine's Day is now open it's free to the public so you just got to go back to the website it just it was locked down it was a feature that went out in the email membership but it is not actually locked down anymore so go ahead and check that one out and um you know, go ahead and let me know what you're thinking of the podcast so far. Anyway, I hope you all have a great weekend. You've earned it. Thanks for listening to the Colorado Switchblade.